This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Well, it's good to be with you again this morning, Brother Lucent. Thank you for that warm introduction and delighted how the Lord has used uh, nine marks in your own ministry. Friends, let me just suggest, if you're a pastor here, think about putting nine marks in your missions budget. Nine marks is a very non-profit, non-profit. I mean, there are non-profits and there are non-profits. <laughs> when you have a ministry aimed at pastors, you're not reaching out to the deep donors. We're not talking Ligonier and grace to you and desiring God here. This is like reaching out to pastors. So, uh, and what we try to do, we have about a million dollars, a million and a half uh, budget per year. And uh, it, that mainly goes just to paying the salaries of the people who are at the middle who get everything done. So a lot of what we publish on our website, ninemarks.org, is written by pastors. Uh, people write in about, what about this? And if we don't have a resource on it, we create one. So it's very different than Christian publishing companies, which are, many of them are out there to make money. Uh, this, there's nothing we're trying to do like making money. We give everything away we can for free. We put things up there for, so pastors literally around the world can use them. Uh, we don't ask for even attribution. We just want this good stuff getting out there. So all that to say, if it had, it's had that kind of helpful effect in our brother Mark's life, you might want to think there could be other pastors out there that would be helped and that you could be part of that. So think about doing that in your missions budget. That's what we do at our church, uh, and we've encouraged other churches to do that as well. Because if we don't, who is going to? Speaking of churches, I remember seeing a church sign in Louisville years ago that had out front the church that puts its faith in you. Now, I have to say, it was a Unitarian Universalist church. (laughs) Universalism, of course, is the idea that everybody will be saved in the end, and that's been a recurring idea in the history of Christianity. Origin in the early church uh, taught that. Various heretical movements in and away from Roman Catholicism taught that. Among Protestants, it really got going as a movement in the early 18th century. Now, its arguments are rooted in the New Testament passages that contain the word all. Uh, The idea that punishment can never be everlasting because it's always remedial. That is, it's only to teach and to change those that are punished. And that God's grace can never be limited and that God can never be defeated in his purposes and ends. There are a few facts, however, that proponents of this idea of universalism overlook. Uh, For one thing, the word that's translated all in the New Testament uh, are just like the words, our own word in English, all. We have to take them in their immediate context. If I say all the school is here this morning, well, that could be a, a true statement in one sense, and yet that would be false if I made it mean some other things. And God is understood to be glorified in the exercise also of bringing justice. Now, of course, God's grace can never be limited, but he's not required to show any of it to us. It's up to him to decide to whom and when and where he will show grace and mercy. And God will most certainly never be defeated. The question is, what is his end? What is his purpose? So the idea of universal salvation has uh, some wonderful ideas in it. God's certain victory, the wideness and surprisingness of his grace, but it doesn't carefully read God's truth from scripture. Rather, it seems to have its own ideas that it reads into scripture. And simply wanting something to be true does not make it so. One crucial error universalists make is the mixing up of the eternal blessedness of all humans with God's greatest pleasure and glory. Now, perhaps such blessedness could bring glory to God, depending on how it was done. But would God's forever overlooking sin at some point call into question 
God's own goodness. When does patience become indifference? Is there a difference between right and wrong? Universalism ultimately ignores sin and its reality. And for some reason, God has decided to display his glory not only in showing mercy, but also in demonstrating his holiness by exhibiting justice. He has promised, I will repay, he says in Deuteronomy 32. It is mine to avenge. And he repeats this message through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Paul quotes this in Romans 12, 19, as does the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 30. And the Lord promises this again in Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. I will repay. Now, Old Testament Israel often seems to go in the opposite direction from what we tend to do today in this. Clearly grasping their own favored position, they turn to the idea of their election. They turned it into an exclusive ethnic privilege, ignoring God's purposes for the rest of humanity. In one sense, recovering that more universal purpose for the rest of humanity is what the book of Acts is all about. So if you wanted to go in the New Testament, where do you see God's purposes not just for the Jews, but that is for all peoples, you would go to the book of Acts. And that's where we want to turn this morning to one particularly clear passage about that. This morning we want to look at what we may think of really as as the hinge of the book of Acts. It's uh, from the end of chapter 9 really through chapter 12. So turn there now. As you're turning there, let me just remind you, Acts, the second half of Luke's work. Luke also wrote the gospel. And together, Luke and Acts comprise about a quarter of the New Testament. One of the main reasons, maybe the main reason, that Luke wrote this account of early Christianity was to show the universalism of the gospel. Not the universalism of results, the universalism of all being saved, the idea that everyone goes to heaven regardless of their sin, but the universalism of the call of the gospel. Today we need to be clear that salvation is only for sinners that will repent. But in the days of the apostles, another side of the message also had to be emphasized, that salvation is for all sinners who repent, regardless of whether they are Jews or Gentiles. This is the thesis, you might say, of our chapters. Indeed, of of all of the book of Acts, God's salvation is not just for the Jews, but also for the nations, for the Gentiles. And how God taught the first Christians this is important for us as we come to understand more of God's work and our own spreading of his good news. Uh, First, notice, number one, that God prepared Cornelius to hear. God prepared Cornelius to hear. To hear, look at Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and sent them to Joppa. So what's going on here is that God is preparing to introduce his gospel into the larger non-Jewish world. And he begins, perhaps considering the weakness of both Jews and Gentiles, he begins with a non-Jewish person who's called here in verse 2, God-fearing. Now, we have no reason to think that Cornelius was regenerate. Indeed, to change that seems to be the whole purpose of what happens here in chapter 10. The Lord wanted him to be born again. But he was clearly being prepared by God for the gospel. 
there were Gentiles who were not formally full converts to Judaism. They weren't circumcised. They didn't keep all the Jewish laws. But they were attracted to the monotheism of Judaism and Judaism's general ethical teaching. So they were frequently at synagogue. Maybe they observed the Sabbath. And they tried to live by much of the law. So here we see that Cornelius gave alms to the poor. He prayed regularly, probably three times a day. And through this, Cornelius is specially prepared by God for the special beginning of the gospel among the Gentiles, among the nations. Uh, So much could be noted from these early verses in chapter 10. Uh, Military service, even, even an occupying force in this place, doesn't seem to be criticized by Peter or by Luke. Two, it's clear that non-Christians can do good things. Uh, Not things which will save them, but things which considered in and of themselves are good. And again, it's Christianity that has this most realistic view of, of people. We have this understanding that people are both made in the image of God, everyone, and yet are fallen. So Christianity has this uniquely sort of two-eyed, balanced way of looking at the world. We're not surprised when the best of people do terrible things, and we're not surprised when terrible people do good things. Because the worst people are made in the image of God, and even saved people are still fallen. We're not yet glorified. And notice that here, God would not have Cornelius saved apart from exalting Christ and his work. My Christian friend, don't expect God to give visions to your non-Christian friends before you share the gospel with them. But remember that they need the good news. Even apparently good religious people, like Cornelius was, need to hear about the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God that comes through Christ. Uh, I pray that we here in this room will be marked by friendships with non-Christians and marked by regular and fervent prayer for them. Because ultimately, God must prepare people to hear the good news. So we want to talk to God about these people. We want to pray for them. That's number one. God must prepare people to hear the good news. A second matter to note from our passage, number two, God prepared Peter to preach. It wasn't just the one who needed to be converted who was being prepared, but the preacher was being prepared. You see that here in chapter 9, in verses 32 to 43, as Peter travels down to that area, and then in chapter 10 with this vision that God gives Peter, Uh, and then sends Peter to Cornelius' house from that. So at the end of chapter 9, Peter goes out of Jerusalem, presumably preaching to Christians and non-Christians. And during this trip, he goes to the little town of Lydda, 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, on the road from Jerusalem down to the coastal city of Joppa. And there the healing of Aeneas causes a stir. We read in chapter 9, verse 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him. That saw Aeneas, the the paralytic who needed healing, and turned to the Lord. And chapter 9, verse 38 tells us that the disciples on down in Joppa heard that Peter was in Lydda, and they saw an opportunity to call him to come to Joppa in hopes that he could do for their friend Tabitha or Dorcas, who who had just died, uh, another miracle. So Peter came down. And in something that is extraordinary, even by miraculous standards, he prayed and called out for her to rise, which she did. And so chapter 9 ends there in verses 42 and 43. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So you see what's happening in all of this. The Lord is pulling Peter. He's preparing the preacher. He's pulling Peter out of Jerusalem and into this area. And then God gave Peter the most amazing vision. That's what we see in chapter 10, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I love how Peter's character seems to be consistent, even through regeneration. What is he doing? He's contradicting the Lord. Surely not, Lord, 
mean, just what he was doing during Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, this, this sounds like Peter. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate, and they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. I have sent them. Well, Cornelius sent them. We read that earlier in chapter 10. That's right. Cornelius sent them, and God sent them. God is sovereign. We choose to do things for reasons, and God is sovereign even over those choices. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Can you imagine that there in verse 14? (coughs) Saying, surely not to the Lord. Oh, when he's right here, the important lesson he means to be teaching him. Anyway, in this, you see what God is doing. He's preparing Peter to preach to the Gentiles. Now, when I say he's preparing Peter, this teaching wasn't entirely new. During his earthly ministry, Jesus had taught, back in Mark chapter 7, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. But Jesus' disciples clearly had not understood this immediately, and they certainly didn't grasp its implications. So what's happening here is God was preparing Peter to resume God's ancient mission to the nations. The mission... He had given at the very foundation of the Jewish people in Genesis 12, where he said through his descendants, all nations on earth would be blessed. When he called Abram in Genesis 12, and it was the mission that Jonah himself had tried to evade in this very port city of Joppa. Oh, the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. It was like the Lord had allowed a, a 500 or 600 year you know, interruption and then he just continues on with his plan. As I was saying, I will reach the nations and I will use you to do it. My Christian friend, God will prepare you for the ministry he calls you to. In fact, he's already been doing that by where he's placed you. There are no accidents in place and time. God can use you exactly where you are, whatever you are doing, whether you're temping right now or whether you are retired or whether you're a student or whether you're at work or whether you're in mid-career. Pray that God will help you to see what he's prepared you to do for his service and for his glory. And let us, by God's grace, seize those opportunities we've been prepared for, even as Peter did here. So this is number two. God prepared Peter to preach. A third matter for our attention from these chapters. Notice that even with all this preparation, number three, God's spirit brought salvation in only connection with the message about Christ. God's spirit brought salvation only in connection with the message about Christ. Look here in chapter 10 where we left off reading in verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with him, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. This is a Roman centurion falling at the feet of a Jewish fisherman. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Don't call me doctor. Call me brother. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, 
You're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. I just have to stress there in verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Uh, I don't think I need to say this in a theological seminary of the Christian faith, but any idea of, of racial supremacy like white supremacy, but whites are better than other races because, you know, we are whatever we are. That goes exactly against scripture. It's a heresy. It's blasphemy, not even supremely against people of other races. It's blasphemy supremely against God in whose image everybody is made. It is an anti-Christian hateful thing to say at people representing God made by his creation. Anyway, I just say that because of all the stuff in the news. That's from verse 28. 29, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. I love that he has no idea of what's coming. He just knows the Lord has called him to do this. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now before we concentrate on what we should learn from this passage, let's be clear about what is unique in the history of God's work and his people here. The kingdom of God is making its entrance clearly and dramatically into the Gentile world. I don't know that Cornelius was the first Gentile convert. That honor may belong to one of the Greek speakers that we read about in chapter 11, um, or to the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip spoke to in chapter 8, or to someone else whose identity is long lost to us. But we do know that this is the event which, for the first time, one of the apostles, Peter, was the bearer of the gospel to a whole group of Gentiles, and They accepted it. The fact that God intended this to be a clear signal that the gospel was to go to the nations, as if he hadn't already taught that clearly enough, was underscored by the confirming experience with the Holy Spirit, which I think deliberately paralleled the experience the apostles had witnessed at Pentecost. And that was so that there could be no doubt that God was behind this move of his gospel to the nations. Listen again to the very heart of Peter's message here. It's the heart of the message of the book of Acts. Verse 39. 
We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So, my Christian friend, what do you see in this chapter that you need to learn or be reminded of? Well, here are a few reflections. Uh, Be dogged in your commitment to turn people to Christ. I love that in verses 25 and 26. Notice how quickly Peter told Cornelius to, to get up. Now, think about this. Peter was a man with human weaknesses and foibles. We know that. I dare say this Galilean fisherman had not had too many Roman centurions prostrating themselves before him. This was not a common occurrence. How hard would it have been for Peter to have milked the situation for his own advantage and then share the gospel about Christ? Just enjoy it for a minute. The oppressor prostrated before you. But he will have none of that man glory. I'm reminded of the story of the young Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he turned up at Aberavon in Wales to preach for the first time early on Sunday morning, November 28, 1926. E.T. Reese, the church secretary of Sandfields, where Lloyd-Jones was potentially to be settled in his first pastorate, Reese went to meet him at the train station. Reese recalled his young visitor waiting on him that Sunday morning. I hope you don't expect anything great of me, Lloyd-Jones said to him. Uh, the truth was that so far he had not preached more than a dozen times. But Lloyd-Jones was not so quiet when they reached the church. And they saw a huge sign that advertised uh, that Lloyd-Jones was coming. They had this important visitor. And Lloyd-Jones, a young man, as I say, of 26, just looked over to Reese and said, I don't like that. Don't do it again. Brothers and sisters, beware of glorifying the servants of Christ. Honor, yes. Respect, definitely. Even obey, that's biblical. But but, but beware of being or having a servant of Christ who is offended when we are treated as a servant. Also, did you notice how clear Peter was with the gospel message? From having the whole trinity there in verse 38. How about that? God the Father... Verse 38, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, to being so clear that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the very thing that that people who call themselves Christians forgot for a thousand years. Peter is prepared with the gospel. Notice how clear and succinct he is. You can imagine him being the one to write to young Christians a few years later in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Sometimes Christians today seem to assume that symbols should be used apart from faith. But friends, here people are baptized when they believe and not before. This is surely a New Testament pattern. Whatever questions may have plagued various eras of the church about the advisability of baptizing others like infants, surely there has never been any question about the prerequisite of faith for baptism here. So we should follow scripture in requiring faith for baptism. Also notice that these early Christians did not divide the spirit and the word. Peter did not try to have a spiritual experience apart from the truth about Jesus. God himself did not simply send Cornelius an ecstatic sense of his presence. But he enacted a fairly complicated plan in order to get Peter to tell Cornelius the gospel about Jesus Christ. So friends, in our local churches, we should be committed to trying not to separate experiencing God from being informed and instructed about God from his own revelation. That's why the words to the songs that we sing are so important. That's why the sermon should be the central part of our weekly gathering. That's why in our congregation back in D.C., we teach prospective members our statement of faith. We ask them to sign it before joining. 
sign it not in the sense of, okay, okay, you can teach me this, but signing it and saying, this is what I understand the Bible to teach. God reveals himself, not just by our feelings or desires, but by the specific history of Israel, and especially of Jesus of Nazareth, all through his inspired and inerrant word, as his own spirit illumines minds and hearts to understand and accept his truth. So, God's spirit brought salvation in connection with the message of Christ, and that's what he's still doing today. A fourth matter we should observe from this passage, number four, the apostles were careful and teachable and joyful. They were careful. Look in chapter 11. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. Now, some people may think the apostles here are overly conservative. They're ungracious in their spirit by entertaining such concerns, even against one of the most important events in salvation history, the coming of the gospel to the nations. But the apostles themselves still had to come to understand this. This is what the book of Acts is about. They themselves were still working through this. My friends, how how do these early Christian leaders seem to you? Do they seem a little paranoid? I don't think they were. We Christians have been given nothing more precious than a specific message. And it is that message that all of us, but especially these apostles, must protect. Christ himself taught that he was the good shepherd, and the shepherd will go even to the extent of laying down his life for the sake of the sheep. So my Christian friends, we want to be careful like this, don't we? We want to. Yes, the apostles apostles had a special responsibility, but don't we all have a responsibility? Remember how Paul appeals to the Galatian churches in Galatians chapter 1 to reject him or even an angel if they come with any other message? Remember how Paul would warn Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3 that the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Notice he's exhorting a whole congregation, not just the elders, to be careful about the doctrine that they would receive and allow to be taught in their hearing. People today may think that being careful is simply being prideful or too confident of your own ideas. But friends, I want our accountants to be humble, but not so humble that they, weren't, that they won't assert the truth of the multiplication tables. May God make our congregations careful congregations to his glory. May God make your church a place that people know they can go in order to hear what God's word says about a particular matter, where the scripture is handled seriously, reverently, with care given and time taken to present it accurately. So the apostles were careful here. But they were also teachable. Peter recounts what happened in verses uh, 4 to 18. Here in chapter 11, let's, to save time, let's just pick it up with verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections. Praise God, saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So the apostles here were at a crucial stage in their own understanding. They've been taught that the gospel is to go to the nations, but it seems like they hadn't really gotten it. They hadn't really understood, despite all the teaching before them, that God intended to include the Gentiles in his kingdom. But here it seems the penny finally dropped. 
took a long time. But even here, through their carefulness, we see, though they were careful, they were still teachable. And brothers and sisters, I marvel at the humility of the apostles here. That they could have reacted so strongly initially to Peter, and then they listened to him, and they realized they were wrong. That's, that's a humble thing to do. In this, they showed themselves to be Christ's followers. It was Christ who taught that he must always be about his Father's will. He said that when he was 12 in the temple, and he taught it 20 years later in the garden when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. So, brother Christian, sister Christian, I pray that you will always be so teachable. So here when we learn that God promised that he would bless all the nations through Abram in Genesis 12, or when Jesus taught that many will come from east and west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, I pray that you will rejoice at that thought, that you will rejoice. Your salvation is there. Friends, if you're not of Jewish heritage, they're talking about you being included in the kingdom. I hope you will consider carefully how it is that you are called to be a part of this great worldwide plan to bring ever-increasing glory to God. Can you be both careful in your doctrine and humble and teachable in your life? I know you can be. I, I see it right here. And I pray that our congregations will show both of these characteristics together, a right carefulness in doctrine and a right humility before the word go really well together. They're not contradictory. They go well. A Christian congregation should be marked by being careful to be sure of the truth, but also once being assured of it by responding quickly and humbly as we see the apostles did here. I pray that we will incarnate the Lord's instruction in Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But I want us to also notice not only were they careful and humble, but they were also joyful. Look again at that verse 18, that last verse I read. So when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So, so when this penny dropped that God was including the Gentiles in his plan, it was huge. And the apostles responded not just with carefulness, which was appropriate, and with humility and teachableness, which was also appropriate, but they responded also with joy. They, they praised God for this. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Question, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Friend, pray that God make you joyful like this. That you realize what it means to be converted. What it means to be born again. Pray that he give you a joy in this. And pray that we in our respective churches would be marked by this kind of joy as we carefully study God's word, allow ourselves to be corrected by him, and then enjoy the harvest that God brings in our congregations. And just one more thing to inspire our joy. It's God who's behind all this. He's the one who's doing this. Don Carson has observed that the initial impetus to cross lines of race and heritage with the gospel of Jesus Christ arose not from a committee planning world evangelization, but from God himself. It's God who's behind all this, this vast sweep of including the Gentiles to, to giving the gift of repentance even to your Gentile heart. You realize it's the same God that gave that gift of repentance to Cornelius and his friends. That day, 2,000 years ago, it's that same God 
who's given repentance to your heart here if you're a believer. We rejoice in God's good gifts to us and chief among them are repentance and faith. Do you regularly think about repentance as a gift God gives? Look there in verse 18, it's very clear. We read it in the, the New Hampshire Confession or the statement of faith that our brother Charles read for us earlier. That's the statement of faith, by the way, that our church adopts, or adopted when we were founded in 1878. We've never changed it. There it is. That's what we believe. We believe the Bible teaches this. We're not trying to keep it to be conservative. We're trying to keep it to be biblical. This is what the Bible teaches. Therefore, this is what we are going to teach. Let's just hear that article one more time. Article 8. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. Wrought, that means worked. In our souls by the regenerating spirit of God whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition. That means unfaked, sincere contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. At the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king and relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Amen. That's the true source of any true joy that you see in a Christian congregation. May we be so careful and teachable and joyful. A fifth matter to notice, this salvation was not just for Cornelius, but it was for other Gentiles too. Evangelists from the persecution in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 had spread the gospel further to some other Gentiles. You look here in chapter 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, that's in Acts 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. For the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Friends, this good news is for everybody. And these early Christians were telling everybody. And many were converting by God's grace. Jesus had said it would be so. He taught his Jewish disciples in John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Who would have thought that they would have been gathered as a result of opposition to the gospel? But that's what happened here. Again, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we see that those scattered in persecution were the ones evangelizing. So there's persecution of Christians in Jerusalem, and so they spread out. Why are governments in the West turning against Christianity, making it hard on florists? Just read news today that the Oxford Christian Union, the, the evangelical group of students in Oxford, will not be allowed to participate in the student fair there for incoming students for the first time in 100 years because they're seen as too dangerous a group. Hmm. Maybe God is going to keep turning up the heat on Christians in the West. Why? So that we go someplace else. So that we spread the gospel other places in the world where it's not been sufficiently brought yet. Brothers and sisters, I pray this encourages you to know that God can use any circumstances he can use any circumstances in your life for his glory. But there's more in the passage. Notice that the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to encourage the Christians, Jewish and Gentile, in Antioch. Look there in chapter 11, verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was such a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Again, we see the apostles leading wisely here. They've learned from the gospel that it's for everyone, and they're wanting Gentiles as well as Jews to become followers of Christ. They want to help these Christians even at a distance from them. So they, they sent Barnabas, and what a wonderful, quiet, good, edifying ministry he had. But that's another message for another day. Notice one more thing from this passage. Barnabas got 
Paul to help him further, thus strengthening the Christians in Antioch and preparing for the next stage of the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world. Look there at verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that there would be a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And they did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Remember Saul, when he was converted back in chapter 9, God said that he would use Saul to do what? To be his instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so here it is, all getting set up. The newly named Christians were on the verge of a whole new stage of expansion. The early Christians were increasingly understanding that the good news of Jesus was for everybody who would repent and believe. So they sought converts even among those that they had formerly regarded as unclean and had avoided the Gentiles. Perhaps during this time the apostles were remembering again not just Christ's command to preach the gospel to the whole world in Matthew 28, but so much of his teaching which had laid the groundwork for this, like his exclamation of the great faith he had found in the Syrophoenician woman or in that other Roman centurion. Friends, trust that God is at work beyond the small confines that you and I can see. Change your prayer life. Start praying for larger matters than just the immediate concerns of your life. Pray for the gospel to spread in the nations. Pray for God to be glorified in his world. As pastors, I hope we will notice how the congregations in Jerusalem and Antioch were caring for each other. This is an example we should follow. Examples which are to be followed from Acts are those which are either expressly taught, like preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, love, exercising patience, working faithfully, or those which seem to make sense of other commands. So some issues, like Christians meeting on the first day of the week, are both the pattern of the early church and are evidently appropriate, even though they're nowhere commanded. Such patterns are legitimate matters of Christian liberty. Here, since we are told to love one another and we have repeated examples of congregations caring for each other, we should take this as an obligation in our congregations to care for other congregations. So whether that means sending money to a church in Puerto Rico or in Florida or down in Houston to help them or helping them financially plant churches in the area, blessing other churches by supporting nine marks like I mentioned at the beginning or helping churches in Russia or the Middle East or in Mexico or in England or El Salvador. You want to make sure that your congregation understands this to be a basic part of following Jesus. So in my pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings, I always pray for other churches by name. I want to make it clear that we are about the gospel growing, not about Capitol Hill Baptist Church growing particularly. We want to see people come to Christ, not come to us. Hear the story of the preacher who had prayed for revival for 20 years. And then it breaks out, finally, in his town, but in somebody else's church. Well, friends, if he's disappointed, what was he really praying for that whole time anyway? We we want God to be glorified. That's the point. Well, we we should conclude. God's plan will not fail, but will succeed. Chapter 12 in the book of Acts is where Herod had James killed and Peter arrested. God, however, is sovereign, and he had Peter released and Herod killed. And we read in chapter 12, near the end of it, verse 24, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Isn't that amazing? God liberates the prisoner, kills the king, and gets his gospel out. He is not stopped by any earthly circumstances we can imagine. God buries the worker. But the work goes on. My friend, can you see something of the greatness of God's triumph? Listen about it from Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tribe and nation is represented there praising God. God is sovereign over all the nations, and he is sovereign over all the ages. So in 1878, the streets of London were lighted for the first time with electricity. David Hughes invented the microphone, and the first bicycles were manufactured in America. In February of 1878, Thomas Edison patented the phonograph. And in that year, Christians that had been meeting together for several years, both for prayer and establishing a Sunday school um, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., organized together to form the church that I now serve. Those pioneers of the faith have all moved on. God called them home. But the work continued. 470 years ago, today, actually, October the 10th, over in England, God sovereignly did important work. Henry VIII ordered each church in England to display the Bible in English. Just a year earlier, he had been a part of pursuing the translator Tyndale to death. But now, he would have the Bible available in the language of the people. God works through all sorts of people, even once murderous kings. God has his people in his place to do his work. He certainly has had many saints here in Texas. But we know God buries the worker. But the work goes on. Dear friends, with such a sovereign God committed to being worshipped throughout his world, what reason do we have for anxiety? There, there is no danger or worry that this mission will not be completed. As we look to the future and we remember that Genesis 12 is a promise, and we have that promise in our ears that through Abram's descendants all nations on earth would be blessed, and we even have the hope of Revelation 7 in our eyes, seeing that it will be fulfilled, our hearts should be held captive not by fearful anxiety, but by faithful anticipation. How is God going to do this? This is exciting. God's plans are universal in scope, and he will not fail. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for giving Cornelius and those other Gentiles that day the gifts of repentance and faith. We thank you for giving us those gifts. Lord, we pray for anyone here who does not know you that you will make it clear to them what it means to be convicted of their sin, to repent and to trust in Christ for their salvation. We thank you for sending your only son to hang on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all of us that would repent and believe. Thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for accepting the sacrifice he presented to you in heaven. We thank you for the great gospel work that you've entrusted to us. Teach us, Lord, that conversion is your work, that giving gifts of repentance and faith is what you do in connection with the preaching of the gospel. Lord, make us faithful and confident evangelists. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.